And at this time, I invite you to uh, kneel with me if you can. And let's come to the Lord together and uh, seek His seek His face. So, please kneel with me at this time if you can. I'll start. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy holy name. Father, we thank You and praise You for this most beautiful Sabbath day. We thank You for the opportunity that we still have in this country and in other countries around the world uh, to worship You in spirit and in truth on Your most holy day. And we know that uh, the time is coming where this is going to be the, the challenge. This is going to be the test uh, that will secure one or another for all ages. We wish to be sealed in the body of Christ. We wish to be sealed with the truth and to share that truth with others. Uh, and so, Lord, we pray on this most holy day, uh, as we thank You, that we pray for the Holy Spirit to help us uh, to fill out and finish this commission that You've given. Uh, we pray for the Holy Spirit to abide in our hearts and minds and to touch us with power needed, not only to overcome our sins, but to, to reach our family and uh, to reach the neighbors and the world with this truth, this warning message. Uh, Lord, we pray humbly uh, that all that we do uh, points to Jesus and in no way to us, uh, that they may see Jesus in us and be drawn to Him. We read, Lord, the Word that says, If Jesus be lifted up, He will draw all men unto Him. And so, Lord, we claim that promise. May we lift Jesus up in what we think and what we say and what we do. Father, You've heard the prayer requests uh, this morning. Uh, Deb has a client uh, Mr. Judd, Bill Judd, we pray, Lord, that not only you will touch him uh, and help to heal him, we know that he's 95, he's had a long life. We pray that he can still be reached with the truth, that Deb is a positive witness for him, and that uh, before he sleeps, that he will come to know Jesus as and accept him as his Lord and Savior. Uh, Lord, we pray uh, for Sister Valerie and her family. Uh, especially the children, grandchildren, relatives that uh, have run away from you, uh, that don't seek your face. We pray, Lord, that you be very near to them. You send angels that excel in strength to protect them from the evil one, for we know that he would rather them die in their sins. Mm -hmm. And so, Lord, protect them from the evil one until they can be reached with the truth and, mm -hmm. and the choice can be made for eternal life. Uh, we also pray, Lord, that you provide for uh, the many prayers for uh, vehicles. And, uh, Lord, to, we pray especially for Jeanette. Um, uh, we know that there are some issues there. Uh, we haven't seen Brother Tim for a while. And we pray that you will make these issues known to us, uh, that uh, we can uh, fulfill the needs of these two, uh, these two beautiful people. And we pray uh, that you will bless them, that they... Uh, with uh, uh, encouragement and confidence that they are indeed following the truth. Uh, Lord, we pray for our son Joshua, who is seeking uh, marriage uh, uh, with uh, Kayla. We pray, Lord, that you'll give us the words to speak in season, that they will be receptive to it. Yes. Uh, Lord, and that's the big prayer we have, that they will be receptive to it, that they will think it over and hear our experience and our counsel. Uh, and that uh, you will be blessed in all of it. We thank you, Lord, for uh, our churches. 
and the, the people who still seek to do thy will. We pray that you'll be very near to them. Uh, be with Jerry in Battle Creek as she witnesses to those that she works with, her clients, especially be with her client who's 93 and he's having health issues and stuff. Lord, may he come to know you, and uh, if it's uh, his time to sleep, that he will sleep, uh, Lord, in uh, a very gentle way. Uh, we continue to pray for her daughter Kelly and, and uh, for Jim. We appreciate that he still has work. Uh, we pray for Bob and help us to witness to him in the best way. Um, give and teach Jerry to be tactful on how to reach Bob as well as the rest of us. Uh, we're thankful for the rain. We're thankful for our garden, Lord. We thank you for all your love. And I especially humbly ask for myself, Lord, that you give me the words to speak now as we study about the sign that Jesus spoke of. Uh, the hearts will be moved to study to show themselves approved. And uh, that, uh, uh, Lord, we may lift Jesus up. We thank you so much for his life, especially his death for us. We pray forgiveness for our sins. And uh, we look forward to the day, may we hasten it, that he comes to receive us. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayer and answering it as we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The primary difference uh, between those who are of the world and those who are of Christ uh, really boils down to this one thing <laughs> in my mind. In fact, I think it's the one thing that is going to be uh, the test for all mankind very shortly. And, uh, you know, the Sabbath is the issue, but it's not really what the test is. That one thing is summed up, I think, in one word, and that word is authority. Who is the authority in your life? The world or Jesus? Are the traditions of men, their science, their teachings, your base of authority? Or is the Creator in His Word your base of authority, the rule of your life? And that's what it comes down to. The Sabbath is the issue that tells who uh, is the authority in your life. That's what it comes down to. Some people uh, have as their authority science. And I'll say, as the prophet said, science science is good, but there's also a science so-called. A few years ago, I remember, uh, astronomers declared that they had pinpointed the time and date of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. Astronomers did this. They used a computer program to check biblical references against the historical astronomical data gathered on stars between the years 26 and 35 A.D. So they plug all that into the computer. And they determined that Jesus was crucified on Friday, April 3rd, in the year 33 A.D. But I ask the question, can their science be trusted? Is their computer analysis correct? Or is it tainted? Interestingly, 
the U.S. Naval Observatory came out with some issues about dating the crucifixion. (laughs) And I want you to notice what they said. They said all four Gospels... Now, this is the U.S. Naval Observatory. Okay? They look at the stars too. They said all four Gospels agree that the event occurred on the day before the Jewish Sabbath. You know before nightfall on Friday. None of the sources specifies the year, though they agree that Pontius Pilate was procurator of Judea. This places the event in the period 26 to 36 AD in the Julian calendar. From these pieces of evidence, people have speculated for centuries about the exact year of the crucifixion. The problem seems simple. Find a Nisan, that was the Jewish month, a Nisan 15 or 14, if that is preferred, that ended on a Friday evening during the period between 26 to 36 A.D. Seems simple, right? In fact, only one element of the problem is really simple. A Friday in New Testament times is just a large multiple of seven from a Friday today. Right? This is what their thinking is. We just go back, right? Difficulties arise in determining the beginning of Nisan. Unfortunately, the Hebrew calendar of the first century A.D. is not adequately documented and must be reconstructed from fragmentary evidence. We do not know how accurately the calendar was maintained in the first century. All this points to the fact that tables of equinoxes and moon phases cannot alone resolve the problem. Now, in their statement, I think the, the one correct observation concerning the timeline is that the crucifixion did fall between 26 and 36 A.D. That's about the only thing accurate about it. Sometimes, I'll tell you this, sometimes logical theories are wrong. You understand what I'm saying? You can have a logical equation, but if you plug in the wrong numbers your answer is going to be wrong, isn't it? Right? There were a lot of assumptions made by these astronomers. For example, in order for a feast to officially be called, they had to see the moon. Then permission was granted to sound the horn for the feast to begin. But sometimes the weather prevented a visible moon. And so the feast could be postponed for several days. It could be postponed for up to a week. It could be postponed for up to two weeks. It depended on the weather. So that kind of throws a monkey wrench into their going back every seven days on Fridays all the way back, see? Or looking at the stars. You don't know what the weather was like around Jerusalem on that Passover. You understand what I'm saying? So the astronomers, they didn't know. They didn't know about the Jewish economy. They didn't know how the feasts were called. They didn't know these things. They didn't take that into account. They just traced back the Fridays. They looked at the stars, determined the stage of the moon. Faulty assumptions by men unlearned of the ways of God. Hmm. Sounds logical, doesn't it? but they have the wrong answer. 
Now, would you believe me if I were to tell you that the Bible can tell us precisely the year of Christ's crucifixion? A correct understanding of Bible prophecy, especially the prophecy concerning the Messiah found in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, it triumphantly declares these man-made calculations to be in error. The beginning point of the prophecy. Now I'm not going to go. We're going to get into prophecy here in the coming weeks. We're going to get back into studying prophecy, and we'll go through Daniel chapter nine and get into the specifics. But the beginning of the prophecy of Daniel nine, uh, verses twenty-four to twenty-seven, is actually found in the book of Ezra. There's a reason why God had that scribe write the book of Ezra, and it's included in the Bible. And it proclaims that the year 457 B.C. is the starting year of the prophecy. And so if you use the starting date the Lord has provided, <laughs> the crucifixion of Jesus is found to be in the year 31 A.D. He'll be cut off, you see, in the midst of the week. And like I said, we'll be studying it in more detail uh, later on. But that, uh, uh, who are you going to trust about the Messiah? Are you going to trust the Bible, God's Word, or are you going to trust these astronomers and scientists? They say 33 A.D. Now, who would it benefit more? Would it benefit the people of God or Satan more for people to understand 33 A.D.? Benefits Satan, doesn't it? In fact... All false science originates with Satan. Before there can be any reconciliation of differences between anyone, whether it's those of the world and those who are in Christ, and we see a lot of divisions today, don't we? You know, I I really am kind of... Um, I don't know if surprised is the right word. Maybe amazed a little bit uh, to hear Christians complain about being persecuted. <laughs> I mean, doesn't that kind of get you a little bit? I mean, kind of, you know, not that we uh, uh, want persecution, you know, but the complaints from Christians about it is kind of astonishing considering that Jesus said that the world hated him, and if it hates him, it's going to hate you. And so you you know you 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 know August what was August first they had the Chick Fil A thing and and all these people came out in support of of this man's freedom of speech and and Christians and I I I got to listen to all these Christians complaining about how Christians and it's true Christians are being persecuted by the world but that is not to be a surprise to us is it <laughs> and so we see a lot of divisions today. And that tells us that Christ's coming is nearer than it was before. The lines are being drawn. They're becoming more and more distinct. And before there can be any reconciliation of differences between anyone, whether it's those in the world, those who are Christians, whether it's brethren who are in the church, this question of authority has to be answered. That's where the line is drawn, see. And that's what the final issue is about. That's what the final test is about. 
the authority. Which side of the line are you going to be on? It's easy for us to say we believe the Word of God, but it is interesting to see just how we react when shown we are in error by that Word. And we all go through it. That's a part of growing in Christ. How do we react? Do we have a teachable spirit? Do we come to the Lord with repentance and say, boy, I was in error about that. Thank you, Lord. Last week I I said a couple of times and my wife liked it, got a kick out of it. I said, check me out. As Pastor Brooks said, you better check me out what I'm saying. Now see, that's somebody... Now, I'm not tooting my own horn, but if somebody says, check me out, that's showing a willingness to be shown if you're in error or not. Because the main goal I want for myself, and thus for others, is to know what the truth is. Now, I do care what the truth is. Okay, so don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. I don't care what the truth is. I just want to know it. You see what I'm saying? Then I can make a decision. And so, it may hurt my feelings. Maybe. Or I may just be relieved and, and grateful that someone has been able through the Spirit of God to approach me and say, you know, Pastor, let's study this again. I think, you know, this might be in error. And if it's found in error, shouldn't we praise God? Because doesn't that mean God's working in our life? So will we be thankful or will we be stubborn and resist or reject when we're shown that we're in error? One thing we have to understand as Seventh-day Adventists, as Adventists who are giving the three angels messages, as Adventists who are proclaiming this message and, and showing that the line is being drawn, we're not going to get away from the conflict. Every single person individually will have to make a decision. And if you don't think that the devil is going to put all pressure he can on you, you need to go to the Lord in prayer and say, show me. (laughs) Because the devil is going to be given reign on this earth against God's people. Now is the time to make your election and calling sure. Now is the time to grow in faith and strength in Jesus for that time which is just on the horizon. If we are faithful in the little things, it doesn't matter the pressure placed upon us by the devil, does it? Oh, we're going to have struggles. We will go hungry. But what did Jesus do? Did Jesus hunger for us? We may uh, be brutalized. Was Jesus brutalized for us? See, as people who follow the Lord, do we follow the Lord? (laughs) 
I read read Job many times, and it, it just has amazed me the kind of faith Job had in God. And to know that Jesus has said we can have His faith. And when I say His, I mean the faith of Jesus. Job had tremendous faith. Jesus had faith, didn't He? And we can have the faith of Jesus. Isn't that what His end-time people are? They keep the commandments of God, have the faith of Jesus. And Job is the one who said, though He slay me, yet will I trust in Him. And Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but Thy will be done. Do you want to have that kind of faith? I want to have that kind of faith. The battle over self is the hardest battle we must fight, friends. And it's a, it is a battle of faith. I want to share this with you. It's from Steps to Christ, page 63. When we speak of faith, there is a distinction that should be borne in mind. There is a kind of belief that is wholly distinct from faith. The existence and power of God, the truth of His Word, are facts that even Satan and his hosts cannot at heart deny. Did you catch that? The existence and power of God, the truth of His Word, those are facts. Satan and his demons, they can't deny that in their heart. They can't deny that God exists. They know He exists. They can't deny the power of God. They know He's powerful. Okay? The Bible says that the devils also believe and tremble. But this is not faith. Believing and trembling. uh, That's from James 2.19, by the way. Where there is not only a belief in God's Word, but a submission of the will to Him. Where the heart is yielded to Him. The affections fixed upon Him. Him, there is faith. Faith that works by love and purifies the soul. A submission of the will to Him. As I said, Jesus said, not my will, but thy will be done. That's submitting your will to God. And God is working now in us, beloved, to perfect a character that will say in that time, in that issue, who is the authority of my life? Not my will, God, but thy will be done. You see, those who are going to accept the mark of the beast are going to be exercising their own will. You understand that? I can't buy or sell unless I have this mark. So they're going to take the mark. But those who trust God, who accept His authority, are going to say, not my will, but thy will. I will not take that mark. I don't care if I die. If I starve to death, I know I'm in the will of God. I trust Him because in my life I have found He's always had my best interest at heart. Always. Even in the hardships. 
And until there is a complete submission of our will to God, there will be misunderstandings. There will be confusion about the truth. There is a lot of religious confusion and theories in the world today. And unfortunately, many times they spill over into the church. An error is brought. Sad to say, this is where we are. Error has been brought unchecked into the church. And what's the result? It's always division. And people have this misunderstanding of who the church is and say, well, I've got to remain in this divided church because it is the remnant church. You see what I'm saying? That's also a devil's lie. Jesus said, light and darkness cannot exist together. Is Jesus a liar? No. We've got to think things through. <laughs> We've got to think things through. You know, and I know there are varying reasons for why there's divisions in the church, but the main reason, as far as I can see, and the main reason for the confusion and misunderstandings and, and error is a lack of understanding when it comes to Bible study principles. How do you study the Word of God? Do you know the correct way to learn from the Master Teacher? Because there is a right way and a wrong way. The Bible actually lays out a lot of principles. We were in the studio last week and I covered just a portion of these because it's so important. I run into it time and time again. Paul said to Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God. Does God ask us to do something and not help us to do it? Mm. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Well, how do I know how to rightly divide the word of truth? You see, is that just left up to me? We wonder why there are so many variations of belief and religions in the world, and I think it's because most have not learned how to rightly divide the word of truth. And, and really, I know we have an enemy, and he plants tares. But this has caused so much division and disunity among, among God's people. In fact, I believe it's why there are over 600 Christian denominations. Because they'll take one Scripture out of context. They'll put two or three together that don't go together. And they form a denomination. I remember saying last week, I was talking about the Reformers, and I said, you know, a number of the denominations today that carry the names of the Reformers, if those Reformers were alive today, they would be astonished at what the these denominations that carry their name actually believe in practice. It goes completely contrary to what they ever lived and taught. And not only has our Lord protected and given us His Word, but He has also given us the principles needed in searching it for the truth that it contains. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14.33, he said, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. See, because if you're confused, there is no peace. But God's the author of peace, as in all churches of the saints. 
So it's not God's will for us to be confused, especially concerning the truth about Him. And friends, I'll tell you this, and you've probably heard me say this before, there is a fundamental difference between reading the Bible and searching the Scriptures. While it's good to read the Word of God so that we can be familiar uh, uh, with what it contains, that in, in and of itself doesn't necessarily give us the wisdom that we need to come in line with God's will. When my younger brother was in prison, he read the Bible three times, but he didn't understand it. Or let me put it this way, he misunderstood many parts of it. But Jesus said in John 5.39, He said, Search the Scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of Me. So from Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Jesus. See? The Word. The word search, I looked it up. It's Strong's number uh, 2045, 2045. And it's the Greek word, and it means to examine into. And when you examine something, I always thought of having a magnifying glass. You examine into it. You're not just perusing it. You're examining into it. So Jesus is saying, if you want to know the truth about me, you must examine into the Scriptures. For they give witness of me, who I am. The word testify, when he said, they testify, it's the Greek word marturo. It's Strong's number 3140. It means to bear witness or not keep back testimony. To bear witness. So what are some of the principles that the Bible lays out for searching or examining the Scriptures? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit just a few of them real quickly here. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to real quickly here go through just a few um, biblical principles of study. These are basic principles of study. We have, you know, I put together a little tract that goes more in detail. We may have copies if you want a copy of that. I can't remember. But, um, we may have to have them reprinted. I'm not sure. But... These are things that, the, that you pick out and you've gleaned as you've read the Bible, hopefully reading through and being familiar with it, you come across some of these principles that help you when you search the Scriptures. And this is really important uh, to understand because the topic about the sign, there are a lot of misunderstandings about it, and if we apply proper principles, we won't be confused about it. And so that's why I want to kind of bring it out. So 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 21 tells us to prove all things. So we need to prove, we need to make sure that the Bible backs it up. You know, and, and this is where I say, uh, check me out. And as uh, Pastor Brooks, the evangelist, always said, you better check me out. See? Go to your Bible, search it out, and see if what I'm not saying isn't the truth. Prove it. See? Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. So we must prove all things. What then is to be our standard in proving all things? Well, this is a very familiar one. It's Isaiah 8 and verse 20. We know what that says. It gives us the standard. It says, To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. You know, in Isaiah's time here, and what he was speaking about, people would run to their idols and to these false spirits. They go to seances, they go to the witches, they go to whatever, and talk to these spirits to find out what the truth is. And Isaiah said, No, to the law and to the testimony of God. 
See, if they speak not these spirits that you're going to, if they don't speak according to the law and to God's word, it's because there's no light in them. So you have the commandments of God and you have the rest of inspired scriptures. See, the chronicles are the words of the prophets. And then, how do we use that to search for truth? Well, Isaiah gives us another principle. It's Isaiah 28.10. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. And if you go to verse 13, it says, The word of the Lord was unto them precept upon precept. See? Line upon line, here a little and there a little. The Word of the Lord. Now, I dug into the Strong's and I, I was looking at and I was dissecting Isaiah 28.10 and it, in my mind it's, it's rendered better for command must be upon command. Command upon command, rule upon rule, rule upon rule, here a little and there a little. In other words, you search out if you're if you're studying a topic, you've got to take everything the Bible says about that topic and put it line upon line and precept upon precept to the law and to the testimony and go by the way of that evidence. What's it actually saying? Proverbs thirty and verse five. It tells us every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. And Jesus said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. See? That means all the inspired writings. It's by having trust in God and believing that He means what He says, believing that He's not the author of confusion, that He'll lead us into all truth line upon line, that we can with confidence say that the Bible will explain itself with no contradictions. Now, I will tell you, we deal with translations because none of us here, at least that I know of, speak the old Hebrew or the Greek. So, there are some translation issues into the English language. But you can always go back to the original and get the basis of the idea of what's being spoken of, see? That's why, you know, having a good concordance when I study, I use my King James Version Bible, my Strong's Concordance, and the writings of Ellen White, primarily. I also earnestly pray for the Holy Spirit to lead me into the truth as was promised that He would do. Now, I'll also look at other commentaries because Proverbs eleven fourteen says, where no counsel is, the people fail or fall. Either way. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. That can give us some ideas. It doesn't mean don't trust all these commentaries. You know, they're going by what they believe it to mean. But some of these men were very knowledgeable men and they have historical backgrounds that we don't have. And so they they can provide some of that. I'll also use credible historical references as well. However, the final authority for me is God's Word. Amen. That's my only safety, isn't it? Isn't that to be our only safety? Amen. 
I try to put away any preconceived ideas that I may have, and I'll tell you that's a task for anyone because we all have such ideas. I study this way because I want to know the truth, like I've said before. Even if it goes contrary to my my present belief, I don't want to live in error. (laughs) And I always pray that I'll have a teachable spirit. Now, sometimes we come across certain scriptures that can be hard to understand, or we have, maybe we have the wrong definition of terms. And then we can become confused when we read a scripture. We say, I don't understand that. Well, we may have a wrong definition of terms. And I'm going to give you this example, and this has to do with the sign. So there was a few real quick principles that apply, we can apply into what we're studying here. In Matthew chapter 12, and uh, beginning with verse 38, here was an incident here. They came to Jesus, says, Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Now, what were they asking the sign for? What was it to convince them of? You recall? That he was the Messiah. Is that right? So they're asking for a sign from him that he's the Messiah. You've got to keep that in your mind here. Because that's the that in essence is the context. That's the narrow context. Okay? Oh, let me put it this way. That actually is a that's not the narrow context. And the narrow context is the sign that I'm going to talk about. <laughs> that's kind of the broader context. They're wanting to know if he's the Messiah, and they're asking for a sign. Alright? But he answered and he said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. (laughs) There's a rebuke. Now how do you think they took that? Well, thanks for enlightening us. We appreciate you sharing that with us. We must be be an evil and adulterous generation. How do we change from being evil and adulterous, Lord? Is that how they took it? Well, of course not. And he says there, he says, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, this is a very interesting statement. And there's a lot of confusion about this, but most people don't know they're confused about it. There's been a lack of biblical principles used in determining what Jesus was actually speaking about here in these verses. And like I said, it's caused a lot of confusion. That's my hope that we'll let the Bible explain itself, right? We're going to let the Bible explain itself, precept upon precept, line upon line, and that will remove the confusion. Notice that the leaders were asking for a sign that Jesus was the Messiah, and Jesus said that the only sign would be the sign of Jonah. Well, what exactly is this sign? He said, the sign of the prophet Jonah. Okay? So that's the big question. What exactly is this sign? That's the big question uh, with this uh, familiar text. Unfortunately, most of the attention is usually diverted to the lesser issue of the three days and three nights. 
And that's where people get pulled off. This particular passage in Matthew has managed to cause intense confusion, frustration, and I would say more heat than light. (laughs) Let's take a closer look at the three days and three nights for a moment. And let's see if assumptions, like that of the astronomers I was telling you about, remember I spoke of early on? Let's see if assumptions are being made. Jesus said that the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What does in the heart of the earth mean? The grave. The grave? Are you sure? What do you you think it means the grave? And that's what the majority of people think it means. The tomb. Most of them think the tomb. The grave. Assuming that in the, heart of, in the heart of the earth means the grave or the tomb, if Jesus died Friday and rose Sunday, then we note that Jesus was not in the tomb three nights, even though the Scripture distinctly states three nights. And we can get to that a bit later. There are people who, because of this assumption and apparent discrepancy, though, uh, feel that the Bible just can't be trusted because it wasn't three nights. What's the deal? There are others who... Uh, in order to accommodate the three nights mentioned in the verse, adopt the theory that Jesus didn't die on Friday. Have you heard those? Well, He didn't die on Friday. He actually died on Wednesday. Or Thursday. And that, you know, that accommodates the three 24-hour days, see, is what they're saying. And that actually becomes their gospel uh, that they preach to the world, sad to say. They become a fanatic about that. And they're there. That's one of the fanaticisms that's in the movement. Jesus was crucified on Wednesday. Others reason that Jesus didn't really mean three literal nights. Now, no assumptions should be made when it comes to the Word of God, for the Bible clearly explains itself. The problem is not in the three days and three nights at all. That's not where the problem is, but that's where the devil has people focused. The problem springs from our misunderstanding of the phrase in the heart of the earth. If we clear that up, everything else will make sense. The expression heart of the earth is found only in this one scripture of Matthew 12. You realize that? Anybody know that? Nowhere else is it found in the Bible, that expression. So we have to look at similar. This is a principle. Line upon line, we have to look at similar or related verses and compare them to this one. The phrase, in the earth, appears 64 times in the King James Version. And interestingly enough, interestingly enough, I can hardly say that word, um, not one of those references refers to the grave. <laughs> kind of shocking. See, because when we think of it, oh, Jonah in the belly of the well, in the heart of the earth, we tend to think, oh, that means he's in the tomb. But if you look at what the Bible says, nowhere does it say that. It doesn't say grave. It doesn't say tomb. That's not what it means. I'm going to give you examples. Don't worry. I'm going to give you examples here. In the Lord's Prayer, think about this. When we pray, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, does it mean we're praying that God's will will be done in the tomb or in the grave? We were saying in the earth, right? 
Well, of course it doesn't mean that. It means among what? The people of the earth. The nations of the earth. As it's done among the angels in heaven. In the second commandment, Exodus 20 verse 4, we read, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Well, I think when we read that, we can recognize pretty easily that in the earth beneath does not mean in the grave or the tomb, but rather in the world. Right? In Matthew 12.40, which we're talking about, the word heart comes from the Greek word cardia. That's where we get the word cardiac from. Heart. According to Strong's concordance, the word cardia means the heart. The thoughts or feelings or mind. It also means the middle. It's kind of in the middle. It means that it can be mean the middle when you see that used. The Greek word for earth is gehe. It's Strong's number 1093. It means soil, a region, or the solid part or the whole of the terrene globe, including the occupants. It means country, ground, land, or world. So the phrase, you put that together and you look at it, the phrase in the heart of the earth can easily and logically and rightfully be translated as in the midst of the world. See? Or in the grip of this lost planet Jesus came to save. In other words, the Lord was telling His disciples in Matthew 12.40 that as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, so the man of the Son of Man would be in the heart of the earth. He would be in the middle of the world. Now I'm going to explain this, okay? Or let the Bible explain it. The life of Jesus, let's think about it. The life of Jesus was marked by several pivotal moments, wasn't it? For example, when he turned 12 in Jerusalem. That was a pivotal point, wasn't it? He became aware of his life uh, calling and special relationship with the Heavenly Father. What about at his baptism? That was a pivotal point, wasn't it? Jesus began his life of public ministry and preaching. But when exactly, let me ask you this, when exactly were the sins of the world placed upon the Lamb of God? What was the pivotal point then? Where was it? Was it when He died upon the cross? Or when they laid His body in the grave? When they laid Him in, when He was on the cross... When he was laid in the tomb, that was part of paying the penalty for sin. But by that time, the suffering had ended, hadn't it? Was it when they put the nails through his hands? Is that when the the sins of the world were placed upon him? That was a part of it, but that, that wasn't the starting point. The starting point was before the crucifixion, wasn't it? When the weight of the sins of the world were placed upon him? Jesus began bearing our guilt. He began bearing our shame and our penalty after He prayed that prayer of surrender in the Garden of Gethsemane. For the third time He prayed that prayer. And on that Thursday evening, Jesus prayed in agony. The Bible says He sweat great drops of blood. That's not normal. 
He said, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And from that moment on, Christ was fulfilling his destiny as the guilt bearer for the fallen race of humanity. What happened right after that? Didn't the mob come in and carry him away? Jesus then was a captive of who? Was he not a captive of the devil? Now the devil was working through possessed men, wasn't he? But he was a captive of the devil. His communion with heaven was severed. The scissors of one sin cut the cord that had always linked him to the Father, yet he carried all the sins of the world on his shoulders. He was in the heart of the earth from that moment on. Look at the similarities between Jesus and Jonah at this particular time. Jonah was not stationary in that great fish, was he? Now when you put a dead person in a tomb, they're stationary. Right? Jonah was in a fish, and wherever that fish went, Jonah went. Isn't that right? He was mobile. He was a living captive to go wherever the fish took him. When the fish went up, he went up. When the fish went down, he went down. Right? In like manner, Jesus was a captive of the devil at this time when that mob took him. He was completely in control of a demon-inspired mob that took him from place to place. They heaped abuse upon him. They insulted him. They punished him physically. When he suffered the punishment and penalty for our sins, he was in the heart or in the midst of this lost world. Okay? It's also interesting to note, and I found this as I was studying this, it was really interesting to note that there are five Bible verses in which Jesus refers to that Thursday evening as the hour. In Matthew 26, 45, Jesus said, Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now. Now this is right after Gethsemane. He said, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now why would he say the hour is at hand? Remember, there were pivotal points in the life of Jesus that were clearly marked. Isn't that right? Remember, 12 years old, baptism, all right? This is clearly marked for us as well. In Mark 14, 41, we see it again. And he cometh the third time and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. In Luke 22, 14, And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Now we're getting a little bit more detail of when this actually started. See? John 16, 32. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. Here was the fifth one. John 17, 1. Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Now, according to Hebrew law, The sins of the people were to be placed upon the Passover lamb before or after it died. <laughs> it's, a, it's a not a trick question. I mean, it's a simple question. When were the sins placed on the lamb? Was it before it died or after it died? 
is before it died. Wasn't Jesus the Passover lamb? Weren't the sins of the world to be placed upon him before he died? And this is what we're trying to figure out. When exactly were they placed upon him, see? During the Last Supper with the bread and grape juice, Jesus sealed his new covenant to be the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, didn't he? He said, I'm fulfilling this. I am the Lamb of God, as Paul uh, backed up and said. I'm instituting a new ordinance, right? Because I'm fulfilling all those feasts, all those shadows that pointed towards me. All right? A marked change took place the hour Christ was betrayed into the hands of sinners, or we might better say the hands of the devil, I like to say. Something different began to happen. Now follow me here. You see, before this point in Jesus' ministry, every time a mob tried to capture or stone him or cast him off a cliff, what happened? He passed right through them, unharmed. Went right through their fingers, didn't he? This was because he was innocent before the Father. He was under divine, angelic protection. All right? His hour had not yet come. It was not yet His time to suffer for the sins of the world. But after that hour, that Thursday evening, when the past, present, future sins of the world were placed upon the Lamb of God, it was then time. From that moment, He began bearing the penalty for our sins. Jesus was in the heart of the earth. See? The crowd beat Him. They spat upon Him. He was dragged from one trial to another, from the high priest to Pilate, then to Herod, and back to Pilate again. He was in the clutches of the evil world, the clutches of the devil, who is the prince of this world. Remember the disciples came, uh, John and and, uh, James' mother came and said, I won't ask a favor that my son sit at your right hand and left. And Jesus said, (laughs) that's not for me. Can they be baptized? Are they willing to be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? This is what he's talking about. The 144,000 you find in Revelation spoken of are going to go through the similar things Jesus went through here. They're going to go through attacks of the devil without a mediator in heaven. Jesus here has the Father turn his back on him as he has the sins of the world placed upon him. He has no mediator. You see what I'm saying? Up until that point, up until the hour had come, Jesus was innocent. He had never sinned. Jesus said Himself, the devil has come and found nothing in me. So when they come to cast Him off the cliff or to stone Him for what they think is blasphemy, He could turn and go right through Him. He was protected. You see, because sin causes death. They couldn't kill the Son of God. He'd never sinned. You see? But when the hour came and the weight of our sins was placed upon Him, He was in the mob of the devil. Now, imagine how Jonah must have suffered during his ordeal as a captive in the midst of the great fish. Three days in that slimy, stench-filled darkness must have seemed like an eternity. 
Yet the suffering of our Lord was infinitely greater than that of Jonah. How much Jesus, friends, must love, must love each one of us to willingly endure all that in order to spare us the miserable fate of someone who is lost. So as we look again at Matthew 12, verse 40, we understand that Jesus was in the heart of the earth. He was in the grip of the enemy over a period of three days and three nights. Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday night. Now Jesus never said it would be exactly 24 hours. But rather over a period of three days, that's how the Jews looked at it. If you were uh, went into to the next day, a, a few minutes, they considered it a day. That's the way that they reasoned. It's a very interesting study when you compare Jesus with Jonah. Do you know that Jonah was a type of Christ? This is why Jesus said, the sign of Jonah. He was a type of Christ. Now, he wasn't Christ, but we can learn lessons from him, see? You remember that just like Jesus, Jonah was asleep in a boat in the midst of a storm. Jonah instructed the sailors to throw him overboard if they would survive and have peace. And I've often wondered why Jonah didn't just jump overboard. But as I've studied that and contemplated that, it makes sense now. If he had jumped overboard, the sailors wouldn't have had to personally take responsibility and offer him. So like Jesus, Jonah was a willing sacrifice. The, the, the wrath of God was upon all those doomed sailors and Jonah took the wrath by offering himself. And in the same way, we must personally take Jesus and offer His blood as our sacrifice in order to pass from death to life and have that peace that passes all understanding. Isaiah 53 and verse 10 says, When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now I want you to notice the similarities between Jonah's prayer from the fish and the prophetic prayer of the Messiah from the cross. In Jonah chapter 2, verse 3, Jonah said, For thou hast cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. That's Jonah's prayer. And in Psalm 69.2, this is the prayer of the Messiah. Notice the similarity. It says, I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. Isn't that remarkable? Jonah prayed by faith from the bowels of that great fish and believed that the Lord could hear him in spite of the evidence of his senses. That he was hopelessly separated from God. See, the senses can fool us, can't they? In Jonah 2 and verse 4, the very next verse, he says, Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. Like I said earlier, Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. 
But in like manner, Jesus sensed that awful separation from the Father during His ordeal on the cross. He said, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? And then by faith, He reached up into the heavenly temple and prayed, Father, into Thy hands I commend or commit my spirit. Though He slay me, yet will I trust in Him. That was a tremendous act of faith. Christ was bearing the guilt and sins of a lost world and felt that internal separation from the Father because of it. Now, many think that the sign Jesus spoke of was the three days and three nights. You see what I'm saying? They think that's the sign. But notice in the Gospel of Luke that when referring to the sign of Jonah, Jesus never mentions the time period at all. You've got to take note of that. The emphasis of Christ is on the way His people rejected His ministry, preaching and prophecy in comparison with the Ninevites who received and repented at the preaching of Jonah. In Luke 11, verse 29, He says, And when the people were gathered thick together, He began to say, This is an evil generation. They seek a sign, and there shall no sign be given it, but the sign of Jonah the prophet. And our scripture reading, verse 30, For as Jonah was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. Some very interesting things when you study this all out together and compare. Like time elements. After Jonah came out of the water, it took him three days to reach the city of Nineveh. He then entered the city one day's journey, or that was twelve hours. That's three and a half days. And preached that after 40 days, the city was going to be destroyed unless they repented. So you have a three and a half and 40. That same sequence of three and a half followed by 40 is also found in Scripture uh, elsewhere. For example, Elijah ministered for three and a half years during the famine and then fled for 40 days from Jezebel. Isn't that interesting? Jesus came up from the waters of baptism and preached to the Jews for three and a half years, warning that in one generation, which is considered 40 years, the city and temple would be destroyed. And because the nation and city, nation of Israel didn't listen and repent, what happened? It was destroyed. Could that happen again to God's church? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Many are the ways in which Jonah was a sign or type of Christ. The principal sign of Jesus to His people was His resurrection. Isn't that true? John chapter 2, verse 18, Then answered the Jews and said unto Him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But He spake of the temple of His body. In the same way, the sign of Jonah to the Ninevites was that God had, in figure, raised him from certain death. See the parallels? No doubt Jonah, like Jesus, bore scars from his ordeal. 
And as Jonah went down the streets of Nineveh preaching, his skin could very well have been bleached and raw covered with bits of dry seaweed. Probably stunk like you wouldn't believe. You know, there have been examples that I've read about in our time where people were swallowed by some type of large fish (laughs) and were later rescued alive. And the reports were that their skin was burnt and pale. And I'm sure Jonah shared with his audience the highlights of his adventure and his virtual resurrection from certain death from that fish. And he probably had burns on his skin and pale because it started to digest him. I also found it very interesting that in numerous wall paintings of the Christian catacombs over in Italy, Christ's resurrection is symbolically represented as Jonah being spewed out by the whale. Do you know that? In fact, the scene of Jonah, it's known there as Jonah's cycle because it consists of different scenes. But the scene of Jonah is perhaps the most common symbolic representation of Christ's resurrection. (laughs) The catacombs indicate that the early Christians identified the sign of Jonah with the event of the resurrection and not with its time element. That's a key. We We have to take in consideration. Time and place has to be considered, you know. Paul himself confirms this when he writes in Romans 1.4 that Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And friends, today I can tell you that every real Christian has, like Jonah, experienced a type of resurrection and a new life. Praise God. We each are called to go where God sends us to preach a message of mercy and warning. Isn't that true? Just like Jonah. Yet much of the Christian world's turning away from the modern day remnant Jonas. Still today, there are those who will not believe unless they see signs and wonders and healings and miracles. The sign Jesus gave to his generation is still valid today, friends. For three days and nights He took the punishment through suffering and the penalty through death. Then He rose again from the jaws of the grave. And most important of all, Jesus gave us His eternal Word to guide us to the kingdom. Christ said, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. How important is the Bible to us? It was Satan who first asked for a sign from Jesus to prove that He was the Son of God there in the wilderness. And those who ask for one today are following in Satan's footsteps. They will be deceived by His lying wonders just, well, before and during the Sabbath issue. They'll lose eternal life. They'll accept the mark of the beast. Thinking they're following God. Let us listen to Moses. Let us listen to the prophets. Let's echo the words of Peter. And he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Did you know that God has a place reserved in heaven for you? For you? It's reserved. You know, sometimes we make a reservation in a motel and we don't get there. God has a place reserved in heaven for each one of us. Are we going to be there? It's an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The sign has already been given, friends. Do you accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you so much for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Holy Word that you've protected through thousands of years so that we can have it here in our day to prepare us for the final battle, the final conflict. Father, we pray for grace. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be alive in us and help us, Lord, to be prepared for that battle. We're called to be a witness. Give us the strength and and courage to stand though others choose not to. We thank you so much for this Sabbath day, for the blessings that we receive. Please continue to be with us and the holy angels to be with us that we may gain a taste of heaven and encouragement for the coming week to fight a good battle of faith. We thank you for hearing this and answering this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.